Assalamu alaikum. Good morning and welcome to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. The time is two minutes past ten on today, Sunday the 4th of February 2024. My name is Samad Khan and you're listening live to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. On Weekend World we go behind the week's headlines and talk about things that have been happening around the world and uh, and obviously for the last few months one thing has been ever present, present on our TV screens and uh, of course, real concern for very many, and that is, of course, the the ongoing uh, conflict which is happening, the war which is happening uh, between um, Israel and Hamas, uh, which has had devastating com- uh, uh, consequences for the people of Gaza. And uh, we know from the statistics that have been coming out, ratified by the United Nations, that at least 27,000 people plus have been killed, of whom, tragically, uh, more than 11,000 are children and 8,000 are women. 66,000 people have been uh, injured, uh, of those over 8,000 children and 6,000 women. And uh, this is on the background of um, hospitals devastated and destroyed, health facilities no longer functioning, schools um, destroyed and and no school facilities available, uh, and uh, of course uh, a situation where um, people are unable to return to their homes. Their homes have been destroyed. They're living in refugee shelters. They're living in in circumstances which are um, incredibly um, difficult and painful um, and, be- and beyond anything that uh, that any of us can really imagine. We're watching on our TV screens uh, as this um, entire thing unfolds and uh, and very very sadly in many ways um you know this this is one of the f- first conflicts uh, uh and wars g- genocides ethnic cleansings that that has been broadcast live around the world uh, and obviously you use the word genocide with with um uh uh, carefully in these circumstances, we have we've heard the deliberations of the International Court of Justice uh, on this, and and um, there are many who wouldn't agree that this is a genocide. But there's a lot of evidence that points towards it, and clearly there's a lot of evidence that is still being gathered uh, in respect of this. Um, I'm very lucky to be joined um, today by Dr. Abdul Alim, um, who has a huge amount of experience in uh, international development and international affairs. Um, Dr. Aleem, assalamu alaikum. Thank you for joining us today on Weekend World. You're right, Dr. Alaikum. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Aleem, we, we, it's a while since we spoke about this, and uh, things have continued in a, in a very, very painful vein. I, I briefly um, outlined some of the, the most up-to-date statistics in terms of, in terms of what is happening uh, right now in, um, uh, in Gaza. Um, but I mean, your your thoughts in terms of uh, the situation right now, how it's escalated, and where we we are at, and um, and where uh, where you think things, uh, how you think things are going to move forward. Well, I think that um, these events that we are now witnessing are, of course, very tragic and sad. But we also need to be aware that these are happening in very large, in the context of very large geopolitical shifts around the world. Uh, and some of those shifts involve, you know, the the overall decline in the West and the rise of the East, which has been predicted for a while now. 
uh, and of course the emergence of a of a multipolar world after the second world war 75 years 77 years of uh, of uh, the hegemony of some uh, western powers uh, so i think uh, these events have started and of course uh, the uh, the plausible genocide in gaza as put mm. by you the icj uh, is part of that overall change uh, but of course uh, that doesn't really take away the the great tragedy and the sad developments um, and horrific uh, human suffering that's going on in uh, gaza right now mm. and uh, you know we are all uh, really glued to our screens uh, as you said looking at uh, almost a live uh, massacre every day in in gaza and uh, i believe that uh, the recent developments now make me worry that uh, this might be uh, a move to not just uh, displace the palestinians but uh, uh, in one sense uh, perhaps getting rid of them completely because we know that the situation is such that the egyptians will not allow the palestinians to get into uh, sinai which was one of the plans uh mm. but also uh, because of as we will t- talk about the defunding of unrwa there is a problem of mass starvation a forced starvation that's taking place right now and you know after 2 million people now locked into that part of small part of uh, gaza near rafa a million are children who are already very vulnerable and have become weak because of the uh, three months of displacement So I think that yes it's it's a really really very some situation and and I hope that uh, the world can find a solution before it's too late. Thank you Dr. Lim. And and I think that it can get very confusing for people as they're watching on their TV screens the horrific scenes and things that are happening and there's a lot of a lot of anger a lot of upset. Um and I have to say for for people who would be watching and thinking well the, Hamas did this terrible thing. on the 7th of October and and there's absolutely no question that that was a absolutely awful thing and there's no question that the ongoing hostage situation is a is a a tragedy an absolute tragedy the fact that there are children and and women um who are being held hostage by by Hamas the the question then becomes that is the is the response of the um Israeli government and the Israeli military to this situation appropriate is it proportionate and does it have due respect for the rules of law the rules of engagement but also the various provisions in international law that many people are parties to such as the genocide convention and it was on that basis that south africa uh, asked the international court of justice to respond to allegations that israel was responsible for violations of the genocide convention in respect of its actions taken in Gaza um Israel rejected it they said no uh, we we are, we're not in breach of of any of these we're just doing what we need to do and and in many ways the response of the court was was disappointing for many people who were watching because they they were they felt that um because the court had not said yes Israel is um uh guilty of uh contravention of the genocide convention in a ve- in a very clear way um they they felt that the court had failed now of course the 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 court to make that sort of judgment is not straightforward and requires significant amounts of evidence um and 
the judgment that they have given is an interim judgment. It's not a final judgment. But what they did say is very, very interesting. <clears throat> and they said that it, uh, Israel must, um, in accordance with its obligations under the Genocide Convention in relation to Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of acts prohibited in the convention, in particular killings, causing serious physical and mental harm, the deliberate infliction of conditions of life calculated to bring about the physical destruction of the population in whole or in part, and the imposition of measures intended to prevent births. Now, the court had no reason to say these things if there weren't some evidence that Israel was violating the convention. And I think that this is this is the point that is really, really important. The court felt it important to underline the principles of the Genocide Convention to the Israeli government. And they also said that Israel must ensure that its military forces do not commit any of the acts mentioned in point one. And Israel must take all measures within its power to prevent and punish direct and public incitement to commit genocide, which is another really important one because we have seen... Uh, images on our TV screens of um, people within Israel celebrating the death and destruction of the population of Gaza. And we see very little censure of this. And, and And the court has equally said that the Israeli government must take all measures within its power to prevent and punish direct and public incitement to commit genocide. Uh, and that it must take immediate and effective measures to enable the provision of humanitarian r- relief in Gaza. And we'll talk about that in a little, in a little bit more detail. Um, there, there were six orders um, in all from, from the court. I'm not going to read them all out, but, but I think that's a, it's a reasonable summary of <clears throat> the main things that were that the, the court felt it was important to um, Say <clears throat> to say to the Israeli government that these are things that must be done, um, and and that they must demonstrate that they are doing these things, um, and the Israeli government, the Israeli military, has have rejected this, and they've said that that no, and 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 it's and it's startling and stark that many Western nations have also rejected this. This these are the orders of an international court, and if there is a rules based system in the world, then that rules based system must have respect for the international court system that has been set up to ensure that governments around the world comply with the very basics the very basics of civilized behavior. And if we can stand up and and criticize um, countries uh, where we see uh, perhaps rule of law and democracy is not as well developed, in inverted commas, as we see in uh, more, more developed and westernized nations, if we can do that, then we should be ready and willing to criticize when as uh, other more uh, developed nations fall short of those standards, um, but your your thoughts on on the ruling of the of the ICJ? I mean, it, it, as I, as I said, for many it didn't go as far as they would have wanted to, but it was still pretty strongly worded. Yeah, I think the South Africans who brought up the case, and we must congratulate them for that because we thought that at least some Muslim countries will be the first ones to bring it up. But, uh, you know, South Africans have gone through their own suffering of apartheid and genocide themselves. So Mm. they, of course, were the ones who 
were uh, were uh, really disturbed the most. And of course, we also know the history where mm. we understand that the South African white regime was supported by Israel's uh, military assistance for a very long time. So mm. they were directly victims of that situation. But the South African minister, after the ICJ um, ruling, actually came out and say that uh, while the judgment uh, does not really clearly come out and say to make a ceasefire, uh, uh, to put up a ceasefire, and the Palestinians are a bit, uh, of course, disappointed about that, she said that actually uh, the implication of these current recommendations actually means that uh, the ceasefire was implicit within those recommendations. Because uh, when you read out and look at these six recommendations, it is impossible to continue with any military activity if one was to observe those six recommendations, uh, you know, or instructions of the ICJ. Uh, and the other thing is that, uh, you know, usually in cases of genocide, and in this case, of course, the question of whether this is a genocide or not was not put before the court. The, quest, the question was, is it indicating that a possible genocide may happen, uh, which is a sort of an indictment, uh, not, uh, not actually a sentence. Uh, and in that case, ICJ actually did, did come out and indict the Israel, Israeli far-right government of committing a plausible genocide in the sense that it might lead mm. to a full-fledged genocide. And I think that the, the third point here is that uh, the uh, in this case, usually when when dealing with genocide uh, genocidal issues, like in case of Bosnia and other places, it is sometimes the most difficult part is to prove the intent of genocide. Mm. And in this case, actually, the intent was so clear that it really flabbergasts everyone uh, that the Israeli far-right ministers were on television and on the television screens in their council meetings, actually spelling out and articulating clearly the intent to genocide. Mm. And this is not just the uh, any any ministers. This is the prime minister, the interior minister, the finance minister, all of whom belong to the far-right extremist factions in Israel who were coming out clearly in making statements. And so intention was quite clear, and of course behavior went with it. Uh, and it, and of course one of the only things that has happened so far after the ICJ ruling has been that uh, the behavior continues, but you can clearly see that the Israeli ministers are really holding themselves back from issuing any further statements that might implicate them. Mm. And you know also, that Israel was asked to report uh, after a month back to ICJ about its, uh, mm. you know, mm. observation of the of this uh, of these rulings. So, you know, the court has put uh, Israel under notice. But I just wanted to also bring up this uh, issue that you know we when we this happened and we made a, we did our first program. You know, there was the issue about uh, uh, Western governments going around and saying that Israel has a right to self-defense. Mm. And, uh, you know, later uh, documents emerged and we saw them on X and other places where the uh, United Nations had already ruled in its legal case that an occupier force doesn't have a self a right to self-defense against an occupied population, basically. Mm. Because uh, that right to self-defense is actually in case of uh, uh, state warfare and, mm. and another organized group attacking a country. Uh, in this case, in fact, Normal Finkelstein, who is a very famous uh, Jewish scholar in the U.S., said that this could be akin to almost like a slave rebellion, 
where uh, people who have been locked in a concentration camp are trying to break out and this inevitably gives rise to violence just just like in case of uh, african national congress uh, it happened uh, but in any way i think you're right that uh, all hostages must be released but so must the hostages in israel be released mm-hmm. because you know uh, we call them uh, prisoners but yep. uh, you know israel has been taking uh, prisoners uh, since the last three months, and mm. they have now got over 6,500 prisoners taken after the uh, clash started. So I think that uh, those, so we should say that yes, all hostages must be released, and that should include the 7 million Palestinians under occupation, actually. Mm. Thank you, Dr. Lee. And we're very lucky to be joined also by Yusuf Aftam. Yusuf is one of the directors of Humanity First UK, which is a humanitarian organization um, uh, based in the UK, but which works in many countries around the world. Uh, Yusuf, thank you for joining us today. Um, thank you for having me, uh, Dr. Maz, and uh, as to everybody. Yusuf um, I'm not going to ask you about the ICJ. I'm not going to ask you about that ruling because as a, as a humanitarian organization, obviously you, you have to remain uh, some somewhat dispassionate about those political questions. But you have been on the ground. You've, you've seen the situation in Gaza. You have, and, and, and uh, during, during this conflict, you've been able to, to go across as part of a, of a UN convoy uh, into Rafa to, to see the refugee camp and see the situation of people on the ground there. And we've, we've spoken about the number of people who are internally displaced within Gaza, the, the many tens of thousands of people who have been killed and injured. Can you give us some sort of insight uh, into the situation there and just tell us a little bit about what you were uh, able to do and, and how you were able to get in? Yeah, absolutely, Hamad. Not not a problem. And I think uh, just to put it into context for your audience as well, so that they have an understanding, Humanity First UK have been um, providing services, humanitarian services in particular, to the people of the occupied territories, and have done uh, where it's needed uh, work within Israel as well for, for those that uh, require it for for many years, especially in in Palestine. I'd say prior to. To, uh, 2021, um, probably from maybe 20, mm. 2017, 2018, we've been operating there, providing education. We we've had a, a a lab for the visually impaired. We've put desalination units inside Gaza as well on the West Bank, and then been supporting uh, agricultural and self-sustaining microfinancing for for uh, people there. Forward the clock now in terms of where we are now. Um, in, in terms of the current plight and, and crises, um, we were quite fortunate to be uh, amongst one of the first, I'd probably say, uh, independent um, NGOs, but among three of the uh, UK NGOs that have been operating within Gaza, providing um, essential services such as uh, medical supplies, uh, number two, water, sanitation and shelter and then uh, food provisions in terms of food security mm. as uh, as would be known within within the uh, agencies and the wearing actors that do that. Uh, we went out uh, just over two and a half weeks ago. We applied because of our contacts within the agency, that's the United Nations. We, we sit on the logistic cluster, the health cluster, and then 
amongst these agencies uh, we operate in terms of the work that we're doing. We apply through them. It's uh, an organization called the UN Ops, which facilitate the access into Gaza. And it's um, uh, coordinated by uh, multiple teams. So you have um, the Israeli teams, which are under Kogat. They give you the official red light that you can, or, or green light, I should say, to go in uh, because all of the approvals are quite soft approvals. So UN makes a submission goes into the Egyptian authorities, it's also seen by the Israeli authorities, and then Koga overall that coordinate the efforts within the occupied territories. And that is usually done just for your audience 30 minutes as you're, you're passing through you know, um, the check, multiple checkpoints, you go through the Suez Canal, and then you're, then you're allowed in at, uh, after that point to turn around and say, right, you've got your approval. So we got this, uh, the actual approval 30 minutes as we're as we're traveling in and, and crossing the borders um so that's how the coordination Hamad, on that side has has been working mm. and um since we've come out um there hasn't been any other um, international organizations um that have uh, gone in further because of as you know that the fighting and so forth has come towards rafa mm. and humanitarians have been impacted as well um in terms of their access so many partners that we work with such as an era uh, map or medical aid for palestinians also have pulled their teams out and many of the you know global ngos that we know mm. uh, that mm. operate mm. there and and i think that's really quite telling and you you were there for a couple of days i know uh, and and very difficult for you to to, to do anything in terms of being able to provide humanitarian aid in that time, but the the assessment is important. So just give us an idea of the situation on the ground that you saw with your own eyes. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we were in Rafa City. They, they call it fairly safe. To be quite frank and honest with you, nothing is safe. Um, they, they, they state that a two-and-a-half-kilometre humanitarian zone is created in Rafa, and then beyond that is where the active fighting is. Um, Rafa, if you may know it, is a very small, densely populated uh, community there. It's, a, it's about a couple of hundred thousand. As you read in the reports now, what we visibly saw with our eyes was that it's probably about two million people or, or just shy of that living there now. Very, very difficult circumstances. You can imagine, you know, populating um, your whole organ, you know, the, the displacement of people. They've been displaced multiple times coming across you don't have number one proper infrastructure and when I talk about infrastructure I'm talking about the, the ability of the healthcare facilities and services to provide everything that is needed from chronic diseases that you may already have uh, that have impacted people in Gaza for a, a long period of time so mental health yeah, services um, uh, services for women children um, uh, to treat chronic diseases like hypertension and diabetes and so forth and as you can imagine, because of the risk and the environmental changes, there's lots of acute diseases such as respiratory diseases. There are things like hepatitis A that are rife now because of the sanitation around the water. Um, then there are things like cholera and, and diarrhea, and then other childhood illnesses that, that uh, occur. And then those that are more vulnerable in terms of women with the maternity service, quite women pregnant, but those that are elderly, again, being able to treat them. So. There isn't a huge amount of facilities there. A couple of hospitals, Amirati Hospital that is operating there, a small uh, polyclinic, uh, and then 
they're trying to do uh, what we're doing alongside our US colleagues and Anera, who are one of our partners on the ground, mm. have been providing primary care services there. Thirdly, uh, what we saw was a huge impact on um, water. And, and water is essential, as you'll know, mm. for cleaning, bathing, uh, and then for drinking. And, and we saw lines of, uh, you know, four to five hours children, men, women, queuing with uh, small jerry cans just to get water to clean themselves. And I must say that water is desalinated. It's not properly filtered and that causes harsh irritation to the skin as well. And then separately, you've got um, people standing for clean water, portable water that they can drink that is then being salinated, desalinated by a company called Uta there, which are providing it on minimal amount for so that people can benefit and then the problem of sanitation, really bad. No proper mm. sanitation, lack of toilets in terms of provisions, no separation. And then the sheltering facilities are very substandard. Not your proper UNHCR specification tents. They're not protected from wind, rain, um, and uh, fire retarded. So people have just put them up and they're just living in impromptu settlements. So that's the situation there. Very, very bad. And as we were in there, for the three days, um, the winter period was starting. People would have seen the images now of the rain. The rain is mixing with the sewage and that's causing um, rife death, contamination, disease and spread and, and, and so forth. Thank you, Yusuf. And, and just a final question. In terms of Humanity First and, and other humanitarian organisations trying to do what they can on the ground, you've indicated that it's very the current situation is very difficult and it, it's almost impossible for, for teams of people to be able to go in and take supplies in with them to serve um, the uh, the people there, the, the displaced um, individuals, the um, uh, people with with very little in the way of uh, f- facilities for food, water, washing, shelter, etc., uh, as well as as well as medical supplies. Um, what what do you see as the way forward, and 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 what what will be required of um, the international community and of humanitarian organisations in order to try and help the people of Gaza? So. Brilliant question, Ahmad. A coordinated effort is needed, and that's what we're doing with our partners. So we've got an era, fantastic implementing partners on the ground, been operating there for over 40 years. So we are doing simple things, and, and it may you know, obviously sound simple to people, but providing essential food and ration that is needed, in particular staple diets for the people of Palestinians um, that need flour, etc. We're working on that, mm. and, and, we're, and, and we've been providing this. Uh, we've, we've set in uh, three or four trucks, uh, via Egypt and, and from Jordan as well, which have got winter jackets, winter blankets, um, and other provisions that are needed. We are also looking at, uh, uh, we have purchased um, tents, UNHCR specification tents that are family tents that will be able to be utilised and uh, we can get them in. And then our operating partners, again, uh, an area can set up a camp city, ensuring that we have all the amenities, etc., that are needed to allow um a dignified uh, provision for the people of Palestine. And then medical camps we are doing from a primary care perspective and then we're working with multiple other agencies to try and get um, secondary care equipment and medicines in for the hospitals that are still operating that can utilise that. Uh, Our call to action to people really is that the help that you can give or the support that you can give to organisations like Humanity First and our partners is by donations. Mm. Um, I'd say we've probably spent about £150,000 so far, and we're very thankful to our donors 
for that, but there is a huge amount more to be done. You know, if you, tens and thousands is nothing. You're talking about millions that will be needed to be able to help, assist, and facilitate the people of Palestine. So keep doing what you're doing, and if you want to make a change, do donate, and that will have the biggest impact that uh, we can do and enable other people to do whilst whilst we're out there and, and whilst we're monitoring the situation and providing the provisions that we can. Thank you very much, Yusuf Afdab. A real pleasure having you on the programme. Very grateful to you for your insights on the situation on the ground and uh, hopefully get to speak to you again soon. No problem. Thank you for having me. Okay. Dr. Aleem, just to bring you back in here, I mean, a, a, re- a really stark... Um, reminder really of the of the situation on the ground we we can all see it on our tv screens but to hear it from someone who's been there and has seen the situation and 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 also has an understanding of what is required it's a it's a mammoth task and and the the devastation for the people of gaza is is absolutely huge but this isn't a in some respects this isn't a new thing because gaza and the occupied territories have been under siege for a very long time and this situation, which has previously been described by organizations such as Amnesty International as a form of apartheid, um, has required input from aid agencies for decades. Yes, um, I think that uh, in 1948, when uh, uh, the bifurcation of uh, Palestine happened, uh, and incidentally, it's very interesting to note that uh, after the Balfour Declaration in 1917, in 1948, when uh, the State of Israel came into being, uh, that was the only state in Palestine that was recognized. Uh, while the UN resolution that was presented in 1948 uh, stated that these will be two states, Israel was recognized, but the Palestinian state was never fully recognized. So... Uh, in order to be able to manage the state of affairs, where in 1948 about 750,000 Palestinians were displaced mm. uh, from, which is uh, the place which is the, the place which is now currently Israel, of course it has expanded after that. But uh, um, the UN actually set up the uh, UNRWA, which is now one of the major uh, organizations, part of the UN, which uh, helps the Palestinians survive from day to day. Uh, now, UNRWA is uh, one of the organizations, of course, as we know, there are lots of other organizations, but organization UNRWA is the largest one. And it is, it was, uh, it came into being through a General Assembly resolution. So it is not easy to get rid of it in the sense mm-hmm. that it is backed up by a full General Assembly resolution and it's not a product of the Secretariat or uh, a product of the donor uh, consensus. Because the world is behind uh, this organization. And currently it is uh, uh, it, it has about 30,000 employees, mm. most of them who are uh, Palestinian refugees. And it is, it is uh, physically in five different countries with two headquarters mm. and uh, representation in, in, in three of the four uh, major uh, headquarters like Geneva, Cairo, and uh, in uh, in the U.S., so I think there is a very large. It's about thirty thousand employees, and mm. uh, as you mentioned, uh, as the situation gets worse, and as uh, as our uh, friend from United First was mentioning, you know, one of the biggest dangers now is uh, communicable diseases uh, uh, taking hold of those one million children uh, mm-hmm. living in the very small strip of Rafah. 
And as we know, a couple of days back, uh, Israel actually launched a fresh offensive in Rafah, saying that now their uh, armies are moving into Rafah. And that really makes the situation very, very precarious for all the refugees living there because they, they have no place to go. They cannot really return to either Gaza City in the middle of Gaza Strip or up to the north because uh, 70% of the infrastructure has been flattened by these 2,000-pound bunker uh, dumb mm-hmm. bombs that the U.S. had supplied to the Israeli army. You know that Gaza has been bombed uh, three times the ti- three times of the tonnage of the Hiroshima-Nagasaki bombs, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every day, uh, 157, uh, on average, 157 children in Gaza are dying, as compared to Auschwitz, where 127 children died every day. Mm. So this is now even worse than Auschwitz, uh, and you know can, you can imagine the uh, the extent of uh, and the severe severity of the situation. Uh, and so you know uh, one of the things that now is worrying everyone is that if uh, if uh, this situation persists, then we are looking at uh, a, a sort of a murder of almost two million uh, Palestinians. Mm in front of our eyes and and it will happen as it is happening every day and it seems that the world is powerless and extremely frustrating for all of us to say that uh, we will see this happening this enormous proportion of human tragedy happening right in front of us and none of us is able to do anything about it thank you dr lean for a, a very clear summary of the situation and and as we've seen, the there have been a, a number of Western countries that have uh, seen fit to say that they are going to suspend their funding of the United Nations Relief and Works Agencies, UNRWA, and, and the work that they have been doing for many years to support uh, all of the displaced Palestinian peoples. But the, and as you said, two million people in Gaza are reliant on aid from UNRWA and without that funding, we potentially could see the utter devastation of those people and the, and the deaths of many hundreds of thousands. Um, I think it's probably appropriate at this point also to talk about um, the words of His Holiness Azam uh, Azam the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, because we've we've seen this situation. Um, uh, unfolding in, in front of us, we've we've seen this challenge uh, in 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 so many different ways, and and there has been a failure of the international community to respond appropriately to the devastation that is being wrought on the people of Gaza. But His Holiness, as a Muslim, Ahmed, has has not uh, only condemned um, Western nations but also Muslim countries for their failure to act in an appropriate manner to support the people of Gaza. And um, he's he's been very, very clear, one, in saying that um, Western nations, all nations around the world, should be pushing for peace, should be pushing for a ceasefire, should be pushing to an end for hostilities. And, And unless this is done, if things continue, then there is the potential for this to spark a wider conflict in that part of the world and around the world. And so the real fear and anxiety about um, the potential for 
a third world war is is there. He also said specifically about the defunding of UNRWA that if Western countries are defunding UNRWA, why don't Muslim countries unite to fill the void? And um, he's been very clear on many, many occasions. If if only Muslims of the world would unite, they would be freed from these trials and, and tribulations. Um, and he's also said very, very clearly that Western governments are fanning the flames of war to serve their own economic interests. And this is a uh, this is something we've discussed here on on this program many many times in in that respect um that that the that western countries are um uh, clear, clearly uh you know at, at at fault here but muslim countries also need to step to step up uh in this situation but 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 that in in all of this pushing for peace has to be the fundamental thing uh and and peace can only come about if there is justice. And this is a theme that His Holiness, as a Muslim Masrudah has pushed again and again and again. This idea of justice, of absolute justice, and and that without that there cannot be peace, and there cannot be a situation where all peoples around the world have an opportunity for freedom and to be able to live their lives um, uh, in a way uh, in which they are not oppressed. Um, and and uh, do not suffer in in this sort of devastating way as we've seen in Gaza, not just now but for many many years uh, as well. Uh, and and clearly, and we can talk more broadly, not not the only oppressed peoples in the world, uh, but nonetheless, our attentions at the moment are are on Gaza because of the absolute level of devastation that is being wrought on the people there. Um, and and Dr. Lim, your your thoughts on on the words of His Holiness Azhar Mirza Masrur Ahmed? Indeed, uh, he has been talking about um, this um, worry of uh, you know different parts of the world under conflagration, and then this finally leading up to uh, a nuclear or uh, a third world war. And uh, he's been saying that consistently since. Uh, in fact, 2005 and 2006, when nobody ever even imagined that this could happen. And his words are coming true, and unfortunately, uh, the world leaders who he wrote to, in fact, a few years back, warning them of the situation, haven't really uh, understood what, uh, what, uh, how true his words are, and, uh, you know, this, this timely warning to everyone to return to uh, peace and God. Uh, but I think uh, what is very interesting and that I think is happening right now is that uh, the the justice part of the peace initiative that was missing has now finally come into play through the ICJ. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think that uh, that is really, uh, to a certain extent, heartening. We must also focus on what is so positive. You know, that uh, we know that this tragic tragic situation is happening and that you know there are uh, parts of the western world which are complicit in this uh, plausible genocide mm. uh, but also that there are people who are making efforts and you know just yesterday million uh, a, a huge number of uh, people turned up in in, in uk to protest against this genocide and mm. uh, this is similarly happening in many western capitals in the us uh, and so there is a large part of humanity that is agitated and worried and is really coming out on streets and telling its leaders that they must take heed and uh, and advise them to stop this uh, this massacre. Uh, and I believe that uh, peace f- 
will be laid on the foundation of justice once uh, the oppressors are hold to are held to account hmm. uh, put in in their place uh, where they belong um, and uh, the the uh, the deaths of those innocent who have died have been avenged in one sense uh, only then peace can prevail it cannot really prevail on the graves of those who have died uh, in uh, you know in total and extreme oppression uh, so I think that's what uh, what also gives me some hope that there is a now international worldwide uh, citizen movement that is organizing and taking shape and holding these people who are now complicit in genocide accountable. Uh, you know that uh, Mr. Cameroon, the UK foreign minister, has now issued in one sense a declaration of of UK recognizing the Palestinian state mm-hmm. for the first time in its history. And that's a historical statement. But we also know that the Western governments have been paying lip service to the formation and recognition of a, of a Palestinian state for a very long time, while Israel keeps putting facts on the ground, talking in terms of engagement, but actually uh, leading to settler colonies all over the West Bank and Gaza, uh, in fact. And so, uh, you know, I hope that uh, the uh, the statement and declaration by Mr. Cameroon, which is called a declaration as opposed to the Belfort Declaration, I suppose, uh, to to uh, be another major initiative for peace. But I think that um, unless uh, there is, as you said, uh, uh, this effort on both sides where uh, the Western leaders finally come to recognize that they are on the wrong side of history and the Muslim countries uh, stop abetting, in fact, uh, the uh, the oppression by the far-right government of Israel. Because as you know, when Houthis actually launched this um, attack in the Red Sea to uh, cut off the shipping, uh, currently there is an alternative route that is being used by Israel to bring shipments, which is passing through the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and Jordan into Israel. So the supply lines are actually uh, have been, uh, in one sense, replenished. Mm. Uh, so it would not take much for Muslim governments to do something, as His Holiness was saying, to stop this immediately. You know, for instance, it is very easy for Turkey to stop the oil supply that is going through Turkey into Israel. Uh, through its ports. Uh, This alternative route that's been established by Muslim countries, you know, uh, Qatar and Saudi Arabia and many other uh, Arab countries are hugely rich. You know, the the amount of money that is given uh, by uh, the U.S. as a core funding to UNRWA, which is about $300 million, is uh, is the cost of a, of perhaps a plane trip for some of the uh, Western, uh, some of these uh, Muslim leaders who travel with their uh, large entourages of planes and cars when they travel to different countries. So it's not a big deal. But as you as you rightly pointed out, that uh, uh, you know His Holiness has, has condemned Muslim governments for their lack of action. Uh, you know, UNRWA was UNRWA is about thirty thousand employees. Out of that, thirteen thousand are employed by the uh, the Gaza portion of the uh, UNRWA. And Israel had accused uh, 13 people of collaborating in this attack by Hamas mm. about three days back. That has turned down, uh, that turned right now reduced to three. Mm. Uh, from 13 to now it's been three. And even that is uh, is not been supported by evidence because if even the American newspapers are coming out and saying that they haven't seen really any evidence of what Israel is saying because all the evidence is coming out of the Israeli security services, the Shin Bet. And they have been known to 
you know, uh, produce statements uh, in this case and certainly in case of uh, what happened on 7th October. Lots of things that have come, are coming out are pointing to the fact that these were exaggerated and that some of these facts were not based on what actually happened. So I think that uh, to punish uh, an organization like this, which is a sort of a sole supply line or a lifeline for uh, 2 million uh, Gazan refugees mm. is, is again uh, an active, complicit act of genocide. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, it is almost like saying that in NHS, if you find a couple of nurses doing something wrong, you just defund the whole NHS. Mm. Uh, it's just absolutely rid- ridiculous and, and over-proportionate and sort of a disproportionate action on behalf of the Western governments to defund UNRWA for just, uh, you know, and, free employees. And this has been roundly condemned by many quarters, but the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, emphasized that, one, that if this was the case, then any UN employee who had been involved would be prosecuted, held accountable, criminal prosecution. But also he pointed out that... Um, that there's tens of thousands of people employed, as you said, by UNRWA, and to and to punish all of them, and by extension to punish the entire Gazan population because of the actions of a few individuals, was was simply wrong, and it created an incredibly dangerous situation. Um, this this is, and we've used this term previously as well, Dr. Lim, a form of collective punishment. So what you say is that a few individuals within a group are bad actors, so you punish the entire group. This is illegal under international law. Collective punishment is illegal under international law. And it it goes completely against any precepts of justice. Um, and, and, And that surely needs to be condemned. Indeed, if, if you are doing this, of course, you are defunding 13,000 employees who are actually mostly Palestinian refugees themselves. But also on the end of it, you are punishing 2 million mm-hmm. refugees whose lives solely depend on that. Now, I think that we must also look at why uh, this is being done, um, you know, to, to uh, implicate uh, first 13 employees and then saying three employees were involved in the attacks uh, by Hamas on 7th October. Uh, there is, of course, a very long historical background of this, and, you know, UNRWA has been on the wrong side of uh, Israeli governments for a very long time. In fact, this is not the first time the objections have been raised. Uh, and mm-hmm. the reason is is that uh, part of the mandate of UNRWA actually uh, mentions the right of return of Palestinian refugees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that is absolutely an anathema to the Israeli uh, mostly far-right governments because, you know, one of the biggest things they worry about is what happens if the Palestinians are given their right to return. Uh, That will, of course, uh, you know, convert them into a minority within their own country. Uh, And also the other part of this is that UNRWA also holds most of the documentation and records of what has been happening in Israel in and around West Bank and Gaza for the last, uh, you know, 75 years of its Mm. existence. So by defunding it and by gradually trying to destroy destroy it, these two things can be taken care of in the sense that the mandate of return is basically finished. And, the, and then the documentation of what has really been happening, including all the atrocities and the cruel treatment that has been meted out to Palestinian refugees, is basically eradicated. Mm. So these two actions are perhaps 
mainly behind the reason why these three people, and we don't know yet what is the truth, but it is also tragic that the UN actually went ahead and uh, fired these, uh, you know, 12 employees without uh, real proof. Because usually the process in the UN, and you know, I've worked for, uh, worked for the organization for a while, there are due processes that if you are found in, uh, uh, you know, guilty of misconduct, there is an investigation, you can be suspended. You cannot be fired because the contract actually protects you from being fired. You can be suspended again from your duty. And then a full investigation is carried out before actually actual firing takes place. But in this case, the UN went ahead and it actually uh, uh, discontinued the services of these employees uh, without uh, even going through the due process of investigation. Mm. So this was to actually placate the Western powers not to defund UNRWA. And they still went ahead and, and did it. So, you know, it's in one sense, uh, I, I understand that there was a reason to move very quickly, but it did sort of uh, strengthen the, the case of, the, of Israel, which said that, uh, you know, this proves that these employees are actually involved in this kind of uh, behavior. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a mixed bag here. But I do think that uh, we must also recognize that there are several European countries that have not done so. So, yes, UK, Germany, France, uh, the US and Australia and New Zealand have really cut off those funding. But, you know, Spain has, in fact, tripled its funding from UNRWA. Mm. Uh, Portugal just announced yesterday that it is going to give additional a million dollars to UNRWA. Uh, Belgium has come out in support, uh, you know, Luxembourg. So there are several, uh, including Ireland. So there are several European countries that have actually stood on the right side of UNRWA. And mm. that is really heartening. Because that that means that yes, uh, you know the uh, there are people who are then willing to stand up and 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 help out the uh, the severely the stranded Palestinian refugees in in Gaza. I mean, you you said standing on the right side of this, and people I, I expect sometimes feel a little bit anxious speaking out and speaking the truth of the things that they can see for fear of being condemned because there's a there is a huge amount of con- condemnation that happens of of individuals here in this country as well um people get accused of being anti-semitic when they are criticizing the actions of the Israeli government um and we we should make it clear and we have made it clear many many times on this program um that we should make it clear that if there is any criticism of the action of the Israeli government that is not a criticism of um, the Jewish people or of Jews. And in fact, there are many, many Jews who are very clear, both within Israel and outside of Israel, that the actions of the Israeli government are, do not represent uh, the actions of uh, of them, and the in, the intent and the declaration of the Israeli government does not represent them. Uh, and and that Israel does not speak for all Jews everywhere. And I think this is a really important thing for us to to underline, that whilst Israel was set up as a homeland for Jews in the Middle East, it, it does not speak for all Jews everywhere. Um, and there, there, are, there are many who would condemn the actions of the Israeli government in respect of what they are doing, uh, now and have been doing for many many decades 
uh, to the Palestinian people, both in Gaza and the West Bank and the rest of the occupied territories. Um, Which I think the confusion is that uh, in this case, religion, uh, nationality and race have been all mixed up. Mm. Uh, you know, Judaism is not a race. Uh, Jews are not a race. Uh, so sometimes when you hear news items coming out of uh, Middle East, people say the the Jews and and the Palestinians. Now, that's, this mm. is not uh, a correct comparison, you know. There are Jewish Palestinians. There are Christian Palestinians. Mm, mm, uh, mm. And one of the very interesting things that was done by the by the Zionists in 18, late 1800s was that they actually were able to conflate uh, Jewishness with uh, with being a race mm. and also of forming a state based on a Jewish uh, uh, entity as being a nationality. Mm. Now, this is, this is absolutely uh, uh, strange and, in fact, very dangerous because, as we know, uh, there are many. There is, of course, another country which has done so, which is you know uh, Pakistan, mm. which has used uh, religion to start identifying as people as either being citizens or non-non-citizens. So let's say if I criticize Pakistan, am I criticizing Islam? Mm. Uh, and this is what is actually happening. So anti-Semitism is actually about a race. And Jew, Jew, being Jew is not about being uh, a racial entity. It's mm. really a religion. So, you know, genetic maps coming out of the Middle East, in fact, show that Palestinians are actually also Semites. Mm. So, you know, you, can, you, you cannot really say that if you're anti-Israeli, you are anti-Jewish or you're anti-Semite, because being Israeli is a nationality. It's not about being a Jew. Mm. And uh, you know, thank you, thank you for that, Dr. Lehman. And, and the, the the subtleties and the um, and the and the nuances of this don't don't give way to simple pigeonholing of entire people based on um, ethnicity or apparent ethnicity. And 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 I guess underlines for for all of us the thing that we know, know to be true, which is that as as uh, a human race, we're we're all part of one larger family, and if we start trying to dissect and cut uh, people up into individual groups, we we start going down a very dangerous path, a very very dangerous path. And this sort of uh, ethnic nationalism, which we see in many many countries around the world, is a very dangerous path for any nation to go down, and risks. Um, a, a situation where uh, individuals are, are othered, are, are put into minority groups, are seen as somehow inferior, while certain nationalities uh, uh, or ethnicities or apparent ethnicities are seen as somehow superior, um, and and that is a that's a real real danger. And that sort of exceptionalism, nationalist exceptionalism, uh, is something that can very rapidly lead to in, injustice. Um, we've got a couple of minutes left, and I did want to briefly talk about the Corruption Perceptions Index because there's um, we've had a new ranking of the Corruption Perceptions Index, and very sadly, the UK has fallen from eleventh uh, place to eighteenth place. And just as by way of explanation, um, this is Transparency International. It's an independent organization, and they look at this Corruption Perception Index. They use various different ways of um, assessing where a country is at in terms of its level of corruption, uh, and they they speak to lots of different individuals. 
and business executives and experts have expressed concerns about insufficient controls on the abuse of public office and an increasing view of corruption and bribery as as real issues in in Britain. Um, and they, they've cited examples such as the government's VIP lane for fast-tracking PPE offers during um, uh, the COVID pandemic and breaches of the ministerial code, uh, which have contributed to the decline in the perceptions of, of corruption. And this is a real challenge for a, for a, a nation uh, like the UK, which, which perhaps has always seen itself as somehow being a bastion of of, of uh, democracy and of and of good governance, um, but but no country is safe if it doesn't watch itself constantly. Not really. Yes, indeed, I believe that uh, uh, in terms of understanding the survey, it's also important to note that this is a perception. Mm. It's a perception index. It's not uh, the actual corruption, <laughs> you know. So, so I think that. Uh, if you really uh, look at this uh, in, in, in a broader context and go in uh, a bit further in depth, uh, what people are saying essentially that they perceive that the UK has fallen on the index. Now, that perception if actually translates into the fact that perhaps there is a much larger problem below this, mm. which mm. might be the actual corruption that is happening. And, and we all know that to be true. So... For perceptions to perception to have moved would have would also mean that there is actually a lot more going on under the mm. under the carpet mm. basically. Mm. So yes, absolutely. I think that uh, this generally points to the fact that we have been talking about in the sense that, you know, we have talked about how almost uh, a million children or almost twenty three percent of the children in UK are now mm. undernourished, uh, and this just shows that the public. Uh, service, uh, you know, systems and public healthcare systems in the UK are suffering, and mm. money is going somewhere else. In yes. one sense, yeah. and that yeah. is really a cause of concern. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Lim. We're coming up to the end of the first hour of the program. I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Abdul Lim and Yusuf Aftar, for their contributions to the program so far. Dr. Lim, thank you very much, and hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you. And uh, we're just coming up to the news now. And uh, please join us again for the second half of the program uh, where we'll be continuing our discussion about the week's news. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Weekend World on the Voice of Islam. The time is two minutes past 11 on today, Sunday, the 4th of February 2024. My name is Samad Khan. You're listening live to Weekend World on the, on the Voice of Islam. In the first hour of the program, we had the opportunity to speak with uh, Dr. Abdul Alim and Yusuf Aftab about this ongoing situation in Gaza, this conflict between Israel and Hamas, which has rendered two million people in the Gaza Strip under extreme humanitarian duress. We have seen many tens of thousands of people killed and injured. We have seen displaced individuals uh, and we see an unfolding humanitarian crisis. Um, and we talked about um, how this can be resolved, how it must be resolved and the, and the humanitarian challenges moving forward. In the second hour of the program, we have an opportunity to listen to the podcast from our colleagues at Rational Religion talking about Zionism and talking about some of the challenges around, for any nation, uh, perceptions of exceptionalism and, and, and perceptions of, of uh, an individual nation or race being somehow special or separate from the rest of humanity and the consequences thereof. So keep tuned, keep listening to Weekend World and the Voice of Islam. Thank you very much for your ongoing contributions. And I will uh, speak with you again soon. 
When I went to Israel, I saw the Bible come to life. And I said, this is the word of God. This is real. Paul said, you will bless the Jews. If you bless Israel, you will be blessed. If you scorn Israel, you will be scorned. If you bless Israel, you will be blessed. It doesn't mean if you violate God's commandments, if you murder and you butcher people, if you kill civilians, you can't criticize them. And that if you go against them or try to hold them accountable, God's their personal bouncer. This notion that the Jews are a special people mm. for which they're arming and funding Israel to bomb Palestinians, wiping out whole families, that's all premised on this Zionist idea that the Jews are uniquely special people intrinsically. And that all comes out of a belief that only they were sent a message from God. It's almost giving them a sense of entitlement that they can do whatever they want, that yeah. they have carte blanche. But they should be fearful yeah. because God does not give carte blanche. Peace be upon you. Are Jews the chosen people of God? This is a common narrative amongst political Zionists, Zionists who say that they are the chosen people, and as such, they have a greater religious and moral right to the land of Palestine to make it, as they call it, Eretz Israel, the greater Israel. Um, this is the question that we're going to be tackling. And to do so, we are first going to be seeing some videos from some American people. Why don't you introduce them first? Well, there's nothing, nothing more to get you riled up and get your passion flowing than a nice Christian pastor from the evangelical South. So okay. Pastor John Hagee? Hagee? From San Antonio. Take it away. Israel may be shaken, but she is not shattered. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob guarantees Israel's deliverance will come as proclaimed every year during Passover. It says in every generation they rise against Israel to destroy it. And the Holy One, blessed be He, saves Israel from their hands. The Bible says, He that keepeth Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. To those who seek to justify the slaughter of Israelis by demon demonizing the Jewish state, Israel is not merely a state. When millions of Zionists mention Israel, they don't just mean the only freedom-loving democracy. Israel is this and more. Israel is the apple of God's eye. Israel is the shining city on the hill. Israel says, God says of Israel, Israel is my firstborn son. Can we just pause for a second? I just feel it's important for us to remember that the official Christian doctrine is that all the Jews are going to hell. <laughs> Please continue. Yeah, that's so true. Jerusalem is the city of God. Jerusalem is the shoreline of eternity. Jerusalem is the eternal capital of Israel today and forever. So I find that really interesting because, I mean, it's just all garbage. Um, from his theological standpoint is yeah. what I mean. Yeah. He's just, he's just making, he's just, he's taking a position which is clearly in contravention. Uh, politically expedient. It's politically well. expedient, but spiritually it's garbage with respect to what he's saying. He, he yeah. believes, as you pointed out, if the Jews have not, uh, if you're not saved through Jesus, yeah. then you'll be thrown and cast into hell. Yeah. This is his view. Right. Yeah. Um, and so it's a strange thing that they, the funny thing is, is that they, what they want to do is, as we mentioned in a previous video, they want to use Israel as a buffer and as a weapon against Islam. 
Mm. Right. That's, that's what, what Christian Zionism that's is. That's what Christian Zionism is all about. Right. Right. And they use all of these terms that Israel is a sh- shining city on the hill. You know, that's, that's the description a, they were meant to use for America. That's an American term for America. Yeah. That's uh, sacrilegious to the American faith. That's sacrilegious to the, the statism <laughs> of the Americans. Um, and I, I find it extraordinary that they use these phrases like Israel is this, Israel is that, when uh, this is all kind of cherry picking from the Bible. Because there's throughout the Bible, you have statements where God berates the Jewish people Mm. repeatedly uh, that they, you've committed this sin, you've been worshiping Baal, you've been, you know, worshiping these idols and then God punishes them repeatedly. Um, and God even says, I'm sick to death of your, I'm not sick. I'm sick of your sacrifices. You're the blood and the meat of your sacrifices. Mm. In other words, that these things, they become rituals for you. Yeah. They're not, they're not meaningful anymore. Mm. Um, so God himself berates Israel, punishes Israel. And according to his own doctrines, they're all going to go to hell because they didn't accept Jesus. Yeah. Which, which raises questions as to his both religious, religious and political motivations for this. As you said, yeah. religiously, this is used as a, as a weapon against Islam. That's right. And politically, I'm sure it's expedient for many of these people. Yeah. But it's theologically illiterate. Yeah. I mean, at least be honest as to what your own faith says. Yeah. And they believe when Jesus comes, because that's what they're trying to establish, they want uh, Israel to exist. They want Jesus to come. They believe that Jesus will then offer Jews the choice of believing in him, or if they don't, they'll be thrown in hell forever. Right, right. So again, extraordinarily cruel worldview. If we go on to the next video, it's, it's even more instructive in a way, actually. He looks like a stand-up gentleman. Let's see what he says. What Charlie nice Kirk. words he says. If you bless Israel, you will be blessed. If you scorn Israel, you will be scorned. When I went to Israel, I was able to cry where Jesus cried where he was betrayed by Judas and arrested, where he rose from the dead and gives us eternal life. I am not an apologist for Israel, but I reject wholeheartedly this narrative. Christians who turn their back on Israel, it says in Genesis and Romans, 1 Thessalonians, Paul said you will bless the Jews. If you bless Israel, you will be blessed. If you scorn Israel, you will be scorned. So it's really interesting, this video. I think as Charlie Kirk, he's quite an eloquent speaker. He's very become very prominent on transgender issues. Mm. Um, and he's a, an interesting character. He's done a really good interview with uh, Patrick Bed David as well. But this video I found so in- insightful because he completely, again, mutilates Christian scripture. Mm. I mean, if you bless Israel, you will be blessed. That's talking about the Israel as a nation and as a symbol of God's people. It doesn't mean that if you violate God's commandments, if you murder and you butcher people, if you kill civilians, you can't criticize them. And that if you go against them or try to hold them accountable, your God's going to, like God's their personal bouncer. Yeah. Okay. That God is, God is a party and an abating, aiding and abetting yeah. sin, right? Of, of cruelty against the Palestinians, right? Which is basically what he's saying. Yeah. That you have to support them unconditionally because God supports uh, the Jews unconditionally which is false. And that's, I think, what we want to get to the heart of here, which is that they have this belief and this, the Christians have, obviously the evangelical Christians have this view and the Jews have this view that God has chosen them such that even when they commit wrong, God has always got their back. Mm. This is this view that God has always got their back no matter what they do. Uh, I mean, and, and, and as you say, it is completely theologically illiterate, especially because even if you were to take this, um, these statements of Paul, which we wouldn't really accept anyway as, as Muslims, but let's say they accept them, right? I mean, this was obviously within a context. It doesn't mean that any group of later European converts who have some claim to being called children of Israel, yeah. but not as full a claim as others, yeah. 
would if they make a state called Israel that oh well well my hands are tied yeah. I need to support them no matter what crimes they commit yeah I mean that is just absurd yeah it wasn't even, the, the the state of Israel didn't even exist at the time yeah. and the extraordinary thing is that Jesus himself cursed the Jewish people hmm. this is the funniest thing he's like he who does not bless Israel if you bless Israel you will be blessed but what about Jesus yeah Jesus cursed the Jewish people like you look look at the New Testament it's full of his curse cursing them hmm. right he says oh ye children of Satan hmm. he says you are vipers vipers and yeah right? I mean his his language is chock full of he says for example an adulterous and wicked an adulterous and wicked nation hmm. seeketh a sign but no sign shall be shown unto them except the sign of Jonah see Charlie Kirk we can quote the Bible better than you all right <laughs> So, <laughs> and the sign of Jonah was displayed. He did survive yeah. when he should have been killed, which was the sign of Jonah. Yeah. And he did survive the crucifixion and he fled east. And this is the funny thing about it. He says, I go, I was walking where uh, Jesus rose from the dead. Well, no, that's actually where Jesus survived the crucifixion and did not take your sins. Right. Um, and the, the Bible in actual fact is being misused by Paul when he says that he who blesses Israel will be blessed hmm. because Paul was in actual fact a Pharisee uh, in the garb mm. of a follower of Jesus. And what he was trying to do is he was always trying to magnify um, yeah. the nation. The Jewish supremacist the Jewish notions. Jewish supremacist notions. Yeah. And this is something that I really want to emphasize, which is, can people tell me why Jesus was born of a virgin? Mm. Why was Jesus born of a virgin? Like, why? What? Unlike I, I, all the other prophets like of all Israel. all the other prophets of Israel, why was Jesus born of a virgin? Mm. Right? The reason Jesus was born of a virgin was because at their time, they had developed this Jewish supremacist view, this kind of notion that they were exclusively, no matter what they do, no matter how they behave with respect to God's creatures, no matter mm. how they behave with respect to God's covenant, they will always be a, a special people that God will show greater favor to than other nations, right. as if God is their own personal racist. Uh, so <laughs> That's basically what it is. God is their own personal race. So it's basically this idea of inherent supremacy. Inherent so supremacy. So nothing that you do can can remove it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Whereas yeah. Jesus said they called them a wicked and an and adulterous generation, right? And as you said, that I mean that this was according to Ahmadiyya theology well, yeah. and they're saying Khalifa of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. He said very explicitly that the the fact that Jesus was born from a virgin is a sign that the Jews were spiritually barren. Yep. That's exactly right. That they were no longer none of the none of their men were worthy of being the father of a prophet. Yeah. Right? Exactly and it was right. a sign that they were barren and thus prophethood was about to be conferred to uh the to the not to people who are not the children of Isaac, but to another people. And this is made explicit, and this is again another example of Jesus cursing hmm. uh his own nation hmm. who had rejected him, not those who accepted him. And remember, the majority of Jews accepted Jesus. Ended up accepting him. They yes. ended up accepting Jesus. So we're not talking uh, about and, the Jews, actually. We're not even talking about the Jews. And we're, those, talk, we're talking about those who have an ethno-supremacist mindset. Who are the ones who rejected Jesus? Yes. Well, some of them. We don't, not all of them. There are many Jews who don't have an ethno-supremacist mindset. I meant at mindset. the time of Jesus' people. You've been talking about historically, yeah. right? So, so I mean, and what's very interesting is that when the Jewish were Roman I mean, wars, Americans in particular, American young Jews are turning away from this ethno-supremacist And they are mindset. to be commended and because, to be commended because the cultural uh, propaganda, if you will, is extremely strong. So to turn away from that in the in the cause of humanity it's very is, admirable is very and, admirable. and praiseworthy. Yeah. But if we look at the time of Jesus' peace be upon him, the Messianic Jews, the ones who accepted him, 
you know, incredibly, if you actually look at the, we don't have many reports of those of that era, but the reports that we do have indicates that on the basis of dreams, yeah. the Messianic Jews, the believers of Jesus were actually led away from the land of Judea where the wars were going to be. Yeah. And they were taken to a place of refuge, but, and then the Jewish Roman wars happened. Yeah. And, and many of those um, people who rejected Jesus or the, the next generation ended up being killed. Yeah. And that was a t- town called Perea. Hmm. Um, and it's a, uh... I mean, the prayers to the place. And there were three uh, great wars. Three great three, wars, yeah. Three Je- Jewish-Roman wars. But the point I was trying to make was that you're absolutely right. So it's 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 all about the the fact that it was a symbol. Je- Je- Jesus being born without a mm. father mm. was a symbol and a signal yeah. that there is no man among you worthy mm. to be the father of the Messiah. Yeah. Right? So it's actually a way by for God to break their arrogance yeah. that we are the special chosen people. God's saying, you're not, you're not, you're so not special and chosen now mm. because of your deeds that I'm not even going to place the Messiah from amongst your men. There's none, no man among you is worthy of being his father. Yeah. Okay. And this is actually explained very beautifully by Jesus himself in Mark eleven thirteen, which completely gives the lie to Charlie Kirk's view of, Oh, he who blesses Israel because it's a land called Israel like, you know, uh, 2000 years later, we just must, you know, sanction what it does and, and give it cover for what it does. In Mark eleven thirteen, Jesus says, it says the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing mm. in the distance, a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves mm. because it was not the season for figs. Mm. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Mm-hmm. And his disciples heard him say it. Read this, read this paragraph. It's like, it makes no sense. Yeah. He's hungry. He goes up to a tree, which he knows is not in season. And it doesn't have any fruit because it's not in season. Yeah. And he curses it. What does that mean? Jesus spoke in parables. Jesus spoke in parables. So he's not actually talking about figs here. He's not talking about figs. He's not a horticulturist. He's not a horticulturist. He probably was a horticulturist. Maybe. Maybe. Who, who knows? But he was talking about... Spiritual a, horticulture. He was talking about... He was talking... <laughs> about the nation to whom he had been sent, Mm. the people of Judea who were going to reject him. Right. He came to them and they were not ready to receive him. The fig tree was a a representation of the Jewish nation. Yeah. Okay. So for example, in the Quran also refers to them by the fig and the olive and Mount Sinai and this city of security. Yeah. Right. So these are symbols, right? When he says that you will may no no one ever eat fruit from you again it's a statement saying that you will have no more prophetic revelation in your community after me right that's what it means it means because you rejected me those who reject me will never see prophethood amongst them again and how is that going to be resolved well jesus himself peace be upon him spoke about it in luke 13:35 he says see your house is left to you desolate and assuredly i say to you you shall not see me until the time comes when you say Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yes. Your house is left to you desolate and I I shall not, and you shall not see me until you say first, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yeah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Yes. In the name of Allah. Right. So it was a sign 
that profited was going to be transferred. And you would not see someone coming with the name of Jesus, with the name of the Messiah, until you believe in the universal Messiah, in the prophet, in the, in the great prophet that was to come, yeah. who was a great prophet. Because he said, him, you will not Muhammad. see me hence, yeah. unless you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who is the person who came in the name of the Lord? It was the one who brought a book, which every single chapter begins with the words, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, blessed, um, in the name of uh, Allah. The name of Allah. Yeah. the gracious, the merciful. So unless you become a follower of Muhammad, you will not see the second coming of Christ because the second coming of Christ was to occur within the ummah, within the following of Muhammad, yeah. which has happened with the coming of Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, who was born in 1835, died in 1908, and founded the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam. And people may say to us, no, well, this is just a Muslim perspective. No, actually, this is a Jewish perspective. Because yeah. if you go to Deuteronomy, and if you go to um, slide uh, 23, uh, so we just go two on. This was something which was said to be in Deuteronomy because, you know, if the Jews are the church chosen people in the way that they think uniquely supreme for the rest of time, yeah. then why was it said by Moses in Deuteronomy that prophethood will, will go to a different people? It says in Deuteronomy 18, 17 to 19, and the Lord said unto me, they have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, brethren, like unto thee and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. But then he says, and a false prophet will die. Yeah. will be killed <coughs> and will be destroyed. And the, and the so prophet, he, gives a, he gives very clear yeah. indications of his quality. So it'll be a prophet yeah. like Moses hmm. from among the brethren of Israel of hmm. the children of Israel, right? Who will speak the So not from the from not from the, no. the children of Isaac. No, not from the children of uh uh Ishaq, yeah, from the children of Ishmael. Yeah. Right? Who is the brother of Isaac. Yeah, and he, God will put Older his brother. God will put his words in his mouth, which means these are dictated revelation. Yeah. This is not like inspiration that, oh, I believe that God tells me this and I write in my own words. Right. It is that the words of God are placed in his mouth directly. Yeah. And that the Quran is the claims to be the dictated word of God. The Quran yeah. does not claim to be the inspired word of God. And he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. In other words, he will fulfill his mission. Yep. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will, will not hearken unto my words which he shall speak in my name. Again, in that concept of blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord, hmm. right? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, the first words of every chapter of the Quran. I will require it of him. And then God gives a criteria. Hmm. Um, if, you, if you see a prophet who says I speak, he speaks in my name, but I have not commanded him to speak, even that prophet shall be killed. I shall, I shall that, even that prophet shall die, shall be finished. And hmm. that means his movement will be finished. Yeah. Nobody can claim that Islam was finished. Islam is one of the great religions of world history. Yeah, right? and the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, survived 23 years and fulfilled, his, fulfilled the revelation of the Quran, exactly. fulfilled his mission. No, no prophet in history was as successful as him. He conquered Mecca, Medina, and the whole of Arabia was unified in his lifetime. So a question First for- First time in human history. Right. So a question for the Jews and Christians is who else was this fulfilled in? And if the Jews were supposed to be the chosen people for all, for all time, then how come Moses, peace be upon him, said that prophethood would, would arise from a different people and you shall be required to accept them? What this tells us is that the Jewish religious identity was not one which was meant to be held forever. Yeah. It was meant to be a transitional identity for a period of time for the Israelites yeah. before they accepted this prophet. Yeah. Jesus, peace be upon him, was their Messiah. And he himself said 
that you shall not see me again and until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of my Lord. Yeah, so which, which name of back, the Lord. Name so, of the Lord. So if we go back to chapter two, slide 21, the question has to be asked and the Christians are going to be putting this to us, which is that how do we explain these verses? Deuteronomy 7, 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord of your God. The Lord your God has chosen to be a people for his treasured possession of all out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. Chapter 14, verse 2 of Deuteronomy, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Exodus, 19.5, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, etc., etc. Yeah. How would you explain these phrases of God mm. that describe clearly the nation of Israel to be his chosen people? Well, according to the Holy Quran, you know, we're coming from a Muslim perspective, but it also makes sense in this context. They were people who were spiritually exalted. They were given uh, prophethood and uh, given a rank of spirituality that was higher than everyone else on earth. At the time. At the time, right? But that did not mean that they didn't reject their prophets and fell into God's disfavor. In fact, they did many times with many different prophets. And it got to a point where, as we have said, the spiritual condition of the Jews deteriorated so much that they were left, they were basically given one final chance. Yeah, yeah? with Jesus. With Jesus, peace be upon him. And he was a, a special prophet from among the Israelite prophets in terms of his spiritual power. And thus he was able to reform many, many of them, Mm. right? The 10 tribes of Israel, who are the Northern kingdom of Israel, they were scattered and they converted to him. Then many, or actually most of the two tribes of the Southern tribes of Israel, the Southern kingdom, they also converted, right? And there was only a remnant who actually ended up disbelieving in him. That was because of Jesus' great spiritual power. But he said that someone else will come. And that Mm. was the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And in fact, there there is no last chance, actually. There's a chance for everybody in every Mm. nation, isn't there? Right. Um, And so that in actual fact, what what we mean is as a nation, if they persist in rejecting prophets, but every generation has their opportunity. Every individual has their opportunity. Every individual has their opportunity. Now, now this idea of being a chosen people and being being um, a chosen people, we've shown that in in the Jewish context, it was temporary, it was uh, tied to their actions. But let's go to the last slide now. And this, this Quranic concept explains this very well. And this is in chapter three, verse 111, where God says, and this is to to the Muslims in the Quran, you are the best people raised for the good of mankind. You enjoin what is good and forbid evil and believe in Allah. And if the people of the book had believed, it would have surely have been better for them. Some of them are believers, but most of them are disobedient. Yeah. So what do you take away from this? How, how is this a rejoinder to the Jewish supremacist idea yeah. that the Jews are eternally the chosen people? Yeah. So this is, this is, God explains here what it means to be a chosen people. Hmm. It says, you're the best people raised for the good of mankind. You enjoy what is good and forbid evil and believe in God, in Allah, the one God. So if you fulfill those criteria, then you, then you are amongst God's chosen people at that time. Hmm. But that's not to say that if you reject that, that somehow God was still going to be attached to you. Mm. God's not your own per- Like, we are all the creatures of God. We're all the children. We're all the creatures of God. We're all uh, created in the image of God in the basic sense of the term. Well, and, and in the Bible, we are called the children of God. And right? the that, that's a metaphor the that the Bible uses. Yeah, we don't use that in it, really. In chapter 2, verse 123 to 126 of the Quran, the Quran really breaks down this question mm. of... You know, what does it mean to be a, a chosen people? It says, O ye children, remember of Israel, remember my favor which I bestowed on you and that I exalted you above all peoples. Right? And then God explains what's meant by that. Mm. See, so God uses the idiom of the Bible, yeah, yeah. but then contextualizes <laughs> it yeah. so you can understand what it even means in the Bible. Yeah. Right? Because if it, God just said, I exalt you above the people of the time, yeah. 
then people, they would say, well, this is wrong. This is, we were, we, it says in our Bible that we are exalted above all the people. Mm. So now God uses the same phrase, but then explains it. Mm. And fear the day when no soul shall serve as a substitute for another soul at all, nor shall any ransom be accepted from it, nor shall any intercession avail of it, nor shall they be helped. In other words, you're not going to get out of anything. Yeah. There's no way, neither, nobody else is going to pay a penalty for you. You're not going to be able to pay a ransom for yourself. Nobody's going to intercede on your behalf and nobody's going to help you out of charity. Okay. Yeah. All the ways of access, you're going to have to actually be worthy. And says, remember when his Lord tried Abraham with certain commands, which he fulfilled. In other words, even Abraham was not specially holy mm. insofar as he had something intrinsic. He had to fulfill certain commandments. Mm before God favored him. He may have had a higher spiritual capacity, but he uh, still had to, he, he was That's still what I mean. it's, there's nothing bound upon him to, to obey God. He was special by virtue of his actions. Mm. He was not special without his actions. Mm. That's what I mean, right? So if you think you're special, how much more special was Ibrahim, Abraham? Mm. This is mm. what God is, this is the message God is giving. God even tried Abraham with certain commandments, which he fulfilled. And he said, I will make thee a leader of men. Abraham asked, and from among my offspring? He said, my covenant does not embrace the transgressors. Mm. So what's the message there? It means those of your children who are transgressors will not be special. And it, and it prophesies that there will be transgressors from amongst them. Exactly. And then it explains further. Remember the time when we made the house a resort for mankind, the, the Kaaba, and a place of security, and take ye the station of Abraham as a place of prayer. And we commanded Abraham and Ishmael, saying, Purify my house for those who perform the circuit and for those who remain therein for devotion and for those who bow down and fall prostrate in prayer. Mm. In other words, the commandments of Abraham were related to purifying yourself, yeah. to worshipping God and, and being obedient to God's commands. Mm. So you can't fall outside the boundaries of that so, so after it says my covenant does not embrace the transgressors, it now tells you what it is you need to do to make sure you're not among the transgressors. Yeah. Can we just go back one slide? This is a post from the Times of Israel. Well, this is about what happens if you don't embrace Correct. this kind of universalist equal opportunities philosophy yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that Islam gives you, yeah. which is every people had their prophets. The Jews were exalted for a period, but they misused uh, that that station and thus um, the, the prophet was transferred to others. And now everyone has their own individual trials. Yeah, absolutely. But we, yeah, but the message of Islam is there for everybody to, yeah. as a yeah. path to God. Um, the, and that's open for all. And, and this is, I think, the most important thing we really want to highlight. This notion that the Jews are a special people especially for God that these Christian Zionists hold mm -hmm. and for which they're arming and funding Israel to bomb Palestinians to death, mm. wiping out whole families. That's all premised on this Zionist, Christian Zionist idea that the Jews are somehow, and the Jewish Zionist idea, of course, as well, which is that they are a uniquely special people intrinsically. Yeah. Right. And that all comes out of a belief that only they were sent a message from God. Mm. So what does Islam say about that? Well, Grant, the Quran says that there is no people who have not been sent a warner, that a warner was raised among every people, every people, the Quran says in multiple verses. Every, that, yeah, prophet is the word uh, used as well, not yeah, the verses. That a prophet has been raised amongst every people. Yeah. So, I mean, you a know. A messenger we sent, yeah, a messenger, Rasul, yeah. Yeah. So, warn, you know, saying, uh, worship Allah and um, shun the, evil, shun the one. evil one. Yeah. You know, so this is the basic message of Islam and every major religion uh, revealed by a prophet was something which was shared, which is, you know, God is one and do good unto others and yeah. purify yourself. That was the message which the Quran says was given to everybody. Judaism does not have such a universalist perspective because it was only concerned with the, with the Israelites because it was... It was one of those national religions. But actually, to be fair to it, 
Moses, peace be upon him, did say that, yeah. that another people would be given a prophet, right? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. They had the prophecy of a universal religion, like all national religions had. Yeah. Every national religion prophesied the coming of the Prophet Muhammad. He, and the Dajjal. And the Dajjal, the great liar. The Prophet Muhammad himself said, I was, I was prophesied by every nation. Every mm. messenger prophesied my coming. Mm. Okay. So the, the point I want to emphasize here is that because it's a national religion, it's a way station on the way to the international religion, which is of Islam. Good way putting it, yeah. Um, the national religion had no framework of understanding what is the place of other nations. Yeah. What is the guidance that God has given to other nations? Because they didn't even have it within their conception. They don't even have it within their concept. If you ask a Jew, well, what about the Australian Aborigines? What about mm. the Native Americans? Were they given a Torah? Were they given a, a Torah teaching? They'll say, well, perhaps, maybe. The charitable amongst them will say, yes, maybe. But if you ask them for their scripture, mm. where is it written? They can't point to you anything. There's no statement there that every nation had a messenger. On the contrary, they're told they're the special people. Mm. They're the uniquely special people. And this is why you get these kind of, when these national religions persisted after Islam, mm. right, which was the international religion, which said, yes, every single nation has had their warner and prophet. So respect and believe in all of them. Mm. This is why the Quran emphasizes belief in Jesus and Moses and all of them, mm. right? Because it has an internationalist perspective, it is a religion of true peace. Yeah, Because it is a religion which necessitates you to believe in the divine origin of Judaism, the divine origin of G uh, uh, d uh, the Jesus was a prophet from God. And, and it humbles you all to being equal creations of God. Yeah, because he but, sent a message to everybody. Yeah. Hinduism uh, was from the Bhagavad Gita originally, its original form, whatever the revelations originally were, hmm. they're also from God. But what happens to a culture amongst people who are, you know, who don't have that view and are taught a supremacist um, uh Ideology. Well, you've got, well, you've got two examples, two major examples of national religions which persisted yeah. uh, past the point when they should have accepted interna an international religion, which is Islam, which is Hinduism and Judaism. Right. And amongst both, you develop this supremacist ideology. Yeah. Right? And actually, they're, they're often quite linked politically. Yeah. And, and even politically, the, the, Indian, uh, the Indian subcontinent, the Hindu fascists, they are the ones who support Israel the most fanatically, mm. right? And the reason is, is because they also have this notion that God only sent guidance to the Hindus, yeah. to the people living around the Indus Valley River, right. right? So the Jews have this view that only the Israel, only the family of Jacob yeah. received messages from God and all of mankind besides them were completely left barren. What, does that, what must that tell you if you're raised in that ideology? It must tell you that you are special. Yeah. If you, out of all the nations of the earth, yeah. It's like, it's, it's a four-year-old philosophy that is just generalized over entire cultures, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. And then if you're, again, if you're Hindu, you have this very, the God selected the people of the Indus Valley River because they were the most special. Why else would God, the creator of the entire universe, choose only your race if you're not special? Yeah. So you can argue that no, 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 it, it doesn't really mean, no, it necessarily means and, you're special. And you know what else the Quran says? There's life on other planets. Yeah. <laughs> the, you know that special. The Quran either. universalizes it beyond <laughs> Earth. The Quran says not only that there's like- And that the divine command, this is a quote, divine command comes down in their midst. Yes. Right? Yeah, that they exactly. receive revelation. That they receive, the aliens receive revelation. <laughs> so they've got their own teaching. Don't you worry about them. We'll take care yeah. of them. Right? I wonder what some of these true believers- And we've got, a great, we've got a great article on our website, rationalreligion.co.uk, yeah, called First Contact, about uh, alien life but mentioned in the Quran. I wonder if when alien life does come, what, what, if they'll say, no, no, we're the chosen people. We're the chosen people. <laughs> we, we received a Torah on a mountain, and, and you just got to respect that. And that's why we actually uh, own your planet. Um, 
<laughs> but this is the new Zion. This is what happens when you this this quote here. I want mm. to show this quote because this is what happens when you develop a supremacist ideology based on the notion that. <laughs> You alone received a message from God and nobody else did. So this is from the Times of Israel blog by Moshe Mordechai van Zuiden. And I'm sure there are many Jews who will decry this guy as an extremist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no doubt. No doubt. And I don't doubt Especially that he, many I don't doubt young, he is an extremist. Many young Western Jews. Ma- many young Western Jews. I, I agree. But I want to show this not as an example to generalize across all Jews, uh, because it's obviously not true, especially with a lot of the protests for example, Jewish Voices for Peace in the UK in, on Capitol Hill. You've had Torah Judaism, Torah Jews. You know, but but this is an important strain which forms the political culture in Israel. Exactly, you can't ignore it. Exactly, this is a common view amongst uh, Israeli religious Jews. Mm. Okay, and that is what's fu- what what's behind as the ideological basis mm. for ethnically cleansing the Palestinians. Okay, and this is a quote from him. So in this in this blog, he writes in the Times of Israel. He says, "When our he's talking about anti-Semitism, he's talking about racism and comparing. He's making drawing a distinction between racism against other nations and anti-Semitism. Why anti-Semitism is particularly pernicious. Hmm. He's saying it's it's a worse form of racism. So it's an exception. Uh, it's atrocity exceptionalism. Correct. Yeah. So he says, when our parents say they want to be our friends, that's nice. But we better also respect them as teachers." Totally equalizing them is demeaning them and arrogant of us. When Jews say they want to be everyone's friends and allies, that's nice. But Gentiles better also give them respect as their teachers. Totally equalizing them is demeaning them and arrogant. Note, we are not the Christians' older brother. Too many older brothers in the Hebrew Bible were passed over by younger siblings. We are their parents. Mm. And he says, then the idea that Jews should be no different than Gentiles already implies opposing Jews, as if they should just adjust to majority norms, integrate in a similar way. And then in a later paragraph, he says this, Judaism laid much of the foundation of all monotheism, one God, science, one universe, and democracy, equality in the world. That's why hatred of Jews is the ultimate ungratefulness. Not rejection of God. Not rejection of God. Hatred of God isn't the ultimate ungratefulness. How can he say equality in the world while he's saying these things? I don't understand. That's why hatred of Jews is the ultimate ungratefulness, throwing mud on Abraham, Moses, Jesus, Einstein, and Herzl. I mean, Einstein... He believes just, Jesus was... Einstein it? despised Herzl. So he called him... He regarded him as... An, he didn't despise him, but he regarded him as a, a Zionism, as, a, as an extremist. Hatred of Jews belief. is throwing mud on Jesus. What? Yeah, I don't, I don't really understand it. He regards Jesus as somebody who will, you know, burn in hell. And he says, and, and this is what really gets me, this last sentence, and therefore the Holocaust doesn't compare to any other genocide, Armenian included, though they are all horrific. Hmm. What's he saying there? Well, he's saying that the, well, he's, he's, he's literally saying that the, any, any, any crime against the Jews, by virtue of them being Jews, is a worse crime yeah. than against any others. He's not saying... So even if the same crime is perpetrated yeah. because the victims are special, the crime is special. Yeah. And, and I think this whole, the whole ideology... He's not saying the Holocaust is worse because of the numbers. No, no. He's saying it's because of the status of the victims. It's because of the status of the victims. And and behind all the and, and what this is all driving at is I think, you know, essentially this idea that because we have been the victim because we are we are very, very special. Yeah. Um we have been the victims of horrific crimes, which is true. Yeah. It's almost giving them a sense of entitlement. Yeah. Those uh the Zionists in, in Israel. A sense of entitlement that they can do whatever they want. That yeah. they have carte blanche. Yeah, that they and uh, the Christian Zionists give them that carte blanche as well. The US yeah. supports them in that way, but but they should they should be they should be fearful. 
Because God does not give carte blanche. No, he doesn't. He does not allow people to uh, commit injustices um, uh, in perpetuity. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And they should fear God. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've, I've, who, who is the true sovereign? Yeah, who is the true sovereign? Exactly. And um, I think you put it very nicely there. I think that the they... I think that there's a real awakening amongst a lot of the younger generation now hmm. that they they can't this is a completely unacceptable worldview hmm. to hold um and that they're perhaps even looking at their religion in a different light yeah that Jews are not special intrinsically yeah and a lot of Jews are moving to the view that you're only special if you hold the commandments right and that's a much healthier way of being yeah because that at least ties your specialness to your behavior. Well, to you your know, actions. One commandment of, of Moses is do not murder. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Another is do not envy what your neighbor has. Yeah. Do not co- covet your neighbor's property or anything of your neighbor. The, the, the verse is actually quite long. It talks about different things of your neighbor. Yeah. So if the um, Israeli Jews followed that, I mean, it would be a, it'd be an, a region of total peace if they truly followed the law of, of, of Moses, peace be upon them. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think that this is you getting back to this idea that because this victim is special, if you a crime against the a Jewish person because they're they're very special. They're more special than others. The crime against them is worse than a crime mm. committed against others. That might explain the mentality that the Israeli <coughs> military and the Israeli government have yeah. of complete pure disproportionality. That when 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 um, when Hamas attacked them, yeah, they kill five six times the number. Right. And killing any civilian is actually inherently disproportionate anyway. By Hamas or Israel? By Hamas or Israel, because they never committed the crime. Just proportionality only applies to the criminal. Yeah, proportionality is on the bounds of legitimacy. Yeah, exactly. So, but but nevertheless, you know, you talk about, you, talk, you can talk about Ben Shapiro, for example. He says, no, disproportionality is the point. We want disproportionality to eradicate Hamas and to teach them a permanent lesson. Mm. But actually that's informed by this view that the crime was up because we're very special. Well, one of us is worth a hundred of them. One of us is worth a hundred. And million. also if, if being the, if, if you're so special, then it diminishes the value of life of others. So yeah, if you, if you, if you kill, you know, a thousand Palestinians, what is it really worth? It's basically a dehumanizing philosophy. Correct. And, uh, and I think, I think the, the, the heartening aspect is the whole world is waking up to this, um, to, you know, to this dehumanizing as well to, to, to Zionism as being a, uh, you know, words kind of don't do it justice, but of being a extremely negative worldview and many young Jews around the world are also seeing that, you know, there is no need to be a Zionist if you're a Jew. Yeah. You know, that's absolutely well, there's right. no, there's no problem with having pride in, fact, in your a lot, heritage. A lot of Jews are saying that it's, it's antithetical to Judaism. Yeah. And, and there's no, there's no problem with having a, not pride in your heritage, but a sense of that you should do honor onto it, but you should do honor into it with your actions. With your actions, not by virtue that you're special intrinsically. And as the Quran says, you have been raised, you know, for, you, you're the best people who've been raised for the good of mankind because you forbid evil and you enjoin good. Yeah. That's what we all have to do. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And if we fail to do that, then guess what? We're not special. Yeah. There's nothing special about us. And even if we do that, we're still not special, actually. Yeah. Only yeah. God is special. Yeah. Right? And that's, that's the reality. That's why the first words of the Quran are, <clears throat> Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. That all praise belongs to Allah, Lord of all the worlds. Mm. All praises, it belongs to him, originates from him, returns to God. Mm. All praises with God, it's not with us. Mm. That is the correct worldview. So that's also in the Torah, which is that you're not special by virtue of you. Mm. You're special if you follow God's commandments because God is special. Mm. And even then that doesn't become your specialness. Mm. It's only that you are a reflection of God. 
Yeah. Or you've taken on a reflection of God by obeying God. Yeah. But actually the praise is with God and it returns to God. It was never yours. Mm. That's the true essence of religion, which is humility. Well, we hope you've enjoyed that video. Please subscribe if um, you want to see more of these. Comment below, do you believe the Jews are the chosen people? Do you believe someone else is the chosen people? What do you think about our analysis of being chosen? Uh, and also give the video a like and follow us on our various social medias. And also download our podcasts, which are on Spotify, iTunes, or whatever is your chosen platform. You are, you are hereby impelled to do all of those things. Thank you very much. Peace be upon <laughs> This is the first part in a serialization of the book Ahmadiyat or the True Islam by Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad. Preface In 1924, the Conference of Living Religions within the Empire held a historic session in London. Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad, second successor of the Promised Messiah and the then head of the Ahmadiyya movement, was invited by the conveners to represent Islam. Ahmadiyyat, or the true Islam, grew out of a paper which the head of the Ahmadiyya movement had undertaken to prepare for the conference. As the paper took shape, it increased in size, and as such seemed the purpose of God, the author allowed it to assume its present dimensions. A shorter paper was later prepared to be read in the conference. The work was also published at the same time, so that a systematic and more detailed exposition of Islam, as reinterpreted in our age by Hazrat Ahmad, the holy founder of the Ahmadiyya movement, should become available to those interested in the study of Islam. In this treatise, the author has exhaustively dealt with such important and vital subjects as the conception of God, his relation to man, and the means of its expression and the realization and attainment of communion with God. He has discussed the teachings of Islam on morals and has illustrated the means provided by Islam to acquire good morals. Under social aspects, the author has explained Islamic teachings about different relationships in various spheres within the family, the community, between partners in business, between government and the people, between different nations and states. He has set out the Islamic point of view regarding the nature of the human soul and the object of its creation. The author has also explained that Islam teaches about the life after death, the rewards and punishments of that life and the nature of heaven and hell, the fact that the author has meticulously and extensively supported and documented his representation of Islam from the text of the Holy Quran and Hadith, the sayings of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, places this unique dissertation among the most authentic works on Islam. The book was written in Urdu and was rendered into English by the Honourable Sir Muhammad Zafrullah Khan, formerly Minister of Foreign Affairs of Pakistan 
at present President International Court of Justice, The Hague, Holland. It is hoped that the work will fill an increasingly felt need among the students of Islam in America and other English-speaking lands. Mirza Mubarak Ahmed, Secretary, Ahmadiyya Muslim Foreign Missions, Tehrik-e-Jadid Anjuman Ahmadiyya Pakistan, Rabwa, Pakistan. Forward to the present edition. Ahmadiyyat Yani Hakiki Islam by Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmood Ahmad, Khalifatul Masih II, the then head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat, is an extended version of a short paper also written by the author, to be read in the Conference of Living Religions Within the Empire, held in 1924 in London, England. Both the short paper and book were translated from Urdu into English by Sir Muhammad Zafrullah Khan. The English version of the book was first published under the title Ahmadiyat or the True Islam in 1924, along with the original Urdu edition. Since then, several editions of both have been published. The book, after discussing distinctive features of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat and the principal objectives of religion, deals with the whole gamut of Islamic teachings from the existence and nature of God and man's relationship with him, to life after death, and in between extensively covers Islamic teachings about social, international, and interfaith relationships in their various aspects. The book is an exhaustive study of Islam in pristine beauty, as well as an introduction to Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat. It is as relevant today as it was when first published, and is a powerful tool to counter the hostile propaganda against Islam, in particular, and fundamental religious themes in general. It is very much hoped that it will remove the doubts of many, and inspire them with a new zeal for a serious and unbiased study of the original teachings of Islam, given to mankind for its guidance and salvation more than 1400 years ago by Allah, through the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. It is also hoped that it will invigorate and strengthen the faith of true believers. Mirza Anas Ahmed Ahmadiyat or the True Islam We render countless thanks to Allah, the Most High, who has endowed us with powers and capacities whereby we can attain to the highest plane of progress and has equipped us with the wings of perception and knowledge whereby we can fly into the heights of the spiritual heavens and who, seeing our shortcomings and weaknesses, has revealed to us the secrets of spiritual remedies and has sent to us to heal our ills, spiritual physicians, who have cured us and conferred on us added strength and power. Again, we render grateful thanks to Allah, the Most Compassionate, who infused his love into our hearts and then made us happy with his meeting, who caused us to taste the cup of his love and then made us drink deep from the cup of union, who in this age of darkness when seekers after truth were groping blindly in the gloom, caused the son of his knowledge to appear, and raised his messenger and prophet, Hazrat Ahmad, 
in the east and dispelled the darkness of doubt and misgivings with the rays of his light. He then caused the breeze of his grace to blow and the clouds of his mercy to pour forth life-giving rain, so that all parched lands be refreshed, and the world become one smiling garden of purity and righteousness, after it had been a barren of wilderness, so that men should draw the breath of life and happiness, after they had become rotten and dead. We invoke blessings on his holy prophet, Muhammad, peace be upon him, through whom was caused to flow that fountain which shall never run dry, and through whom were opened the gates of divine knowledge, which shall never be shut on those who seek. Lastly, we pray to Allah, the Most High, that he may be pleased in the fulfillment of his divine promises to guide the world towards truth and righteousness, and enable it to accept the truth, so that peace may reign on earth, and strife and discord may vanish, and men may attain to true happiness, which can only be found in union with God. I must next give expression to the pleasure that I feel on finding that God has, in fulfilment of his word, which he had revealed in the Holy Quran over 1300 years ago, enabled the conveners of the Conference of Religions in London to collect all of us together in this gathering. I have in mind the following verses of the Holy Book. To bear witness to the fact that truth shall prevail in the end, I call attention to the gatherings in which people shall sit in rows, and to the committees which shall convene such gatherings, and which shall not permit anybody to infringe another's rights, and the persons who shall read papers on the beauties of the different religions, the efforts of all these will lead but to one conclusion, that God is one, the Lord of the heavens and of the earth and of all that is between them, the Lord of the east as of the west. We have adorned the nearest spiritual heavens with stars, charging them to guard the truth from the attacks of all those who lead astray and those who have renounced allegiance to God. Chapter 37, verses 2 to 8. I now turn to the subject on which I have been asked to address you, the Ahmadiyya movement. Before I discuss its purely religious aspects, I deem it advisable to make a brief reference to its history and its present extent and strength. History of the Movement The Ahmadiyya movement was founded by Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, 1835-1908, in March 1889, when he was about 54 years of age. Ahmad belonged to a noble and ancient Mughal family of the Punjab, which had migrated to India from Samarkand in or about the reign of the Emperor Babur. The first ancestor of Ahmed, who came to India, was Mirza Hadi Beg, who, says Sir Lepel Griffin in his Punjab chiefs, was appointed Ghazi or magistrate over 70 villages in the neighbourhood of Gadian, which town he is said to have founded, naming it Islampur Ghazi, from which Qadian has, by a natural change, arisen. For several generations, 
the family held offices of respectability under the imperial government, and it was only when the Sikhs became powerful that it fell into poverty. The headquarters of the movement were established by Ahmed at Gadian, a small town in the Punjab to which he belonged, and which is situated at a distance of about 11 miles to the northeast of Badala, a railway station on the Northwest Railway System. In spite of the violent opposition offered to him by the followers of every religion in India and the unsympathetic attitude of the government officials towards him in the beginning, the movement founded by him continued to make steady progress in all parts of India, so that at the time of his death, which occurred in May 1908, his followers could be counted by the hundreds of thousands, and the movement had spread into the neighbouring countries of Arabia and Afghanistan. After the death of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, my revered teacher, Hazrat Molvi Nuruddin, was elected the spiritual head of the movement, and on his death, which occurred in March 1914, I was elected to succeed him. It may not be out of place to mention here that as was the case in the early days of Islam, the Ahmadiyya community is guided and governed by a spiritual head who is elected by the community. It is not necessary that the head of the community should be, in any way, related to the holy founder of the movement, as, for instance, his first successor was not related to him either by blood or by marriage. Nor, on the other hand, is it necessary that the head of the community should not be related to the holy founder of the movement, as, for instance, I have the honour to be his son. By this time, the movement has spread to almost all parts of the world, and its members number over half a million, the majority of whom are to be found in India, and the countries adjacent to it. Owing, however, to the violent opposition and persecution to which the members of the movement are subjected, many people, who have accepted it at heart, are unable to join it openly, and such persons are to be found in large numbers among the Sikhs, the Hindus, and the various sects of Islam. People of all ranks and classes, those belonging to the self-styled higher castes, as well as those belonging to the so-called low castes, have joined the movement. For instance, during the last two years, about 3,000 persons who had originally been members of certain low castes in the Punjab and the United Provinces have joined the movement, and this number is being added to every month. Similarly, several hundred low caste people in the Hyderabad state have been under the instruction of the movement during the last year. Followers of the movement are to be found in every province of India and in both the Pashto-speaking and Persian-speaking parts of Afghanistan. Of the countries to the south and east of India, members of the movement are to be found in Ceylon, Burma, the Malay states and the Strait Settlements. Two papers in the Malay and English languages are issued by the members of the Ahmadiyya community in Ceylon. There is no regular mission in China, but a book named The Muslim World, printed at Istanbul in Turkish, written by a famous traveller, 
Sheikh Abdul Rashid Ibrahim, who is one of the learned men of Kazan and is a member of the Russian parliament, mentions that members of the movement are to be found in that country also, although those in the interior have not yet been able to establish connection with the headquarters of the movement at Gardian. Several people in the Philippines and Sumatra have also joined the movement. Of the countries to the north and west of Pakistan, members of the movement to be found in Bukhara, Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia and Syria. In Africa, regular communities have been formed in Egypt, Zanzibar, Natal, Sierra Leone, Gold Coast, Nigeria and Morocco, and also in the island of Mauritius. A paper in the French language is issued by the movement from Mauritius. In Europe, the movement has so far found adherents only in England and France. The English mission was established about 10 years ago. In America, a mission was established only three years ago, where hundreds of Americans have accepted and are continuing to accept Ahmadiyyat. A quarterly journal is issued by the movement from Chicago. The movement has also spread to Trinidad, Brazil and Costa Rica in South America. Australia also shares this great blessing and relying on the word of God, we firmly believe that the rest of the world before long will also participate in it. Ashhadu anna Muhammad 